Hello, introducing the Good Herb Wife podcasts. In this, I, Kim Merton, I'm a herbalist and storyteller and a bit of an edge dweller and a bit of a web weaver. I'm going to record various stories and essays and uh, insights. So I hope you enjoy listening and um, you're welcome to share and think of making donations to keep my work going if you find it of um, something that feeds your soul maybe so thanks for listening and the uh, episodes will be coming shortly hello it's the good herb wife podcast here and it's Kim Murden, and today I've got an essay that I st- uh, wrote in May 2020, albeit I am now um, offering it up in early June. And it's called Growing Up. To be fully alive, we have to court death. Listening to the news is a very depleting experience in these days of COVID. Not because of the endless death counts, sad as they are for everyone touched by those who have died, is this truly new news. The industrial style of number crunching is devoid of heart, but more troubling is the perpetuation of the limiting perspectives on the epidemic that is promoted by journalists motivated by energies that seek to stir shame and blame. What if this unconscious viral protein is asking more of us than adhering to political allegiances or being wedded to one type of belief system, educational outlook or medical understanding? While the discussions and analysis within those terms is very important now and in the years ahead, it's not my focus here. Rather, I want to muse on why the approach is so depleting and antithetical to the forces that serve life. Indeed, the terminology used tells us much. Lockdown, a term of imprisonment. And as for the virus, we hear calls to fight a war against its devilish ways. Such terms seek out adversarial mindsets and promote once more the unhelpful separation of humans from being part of nature. And as for the words stay safe, that has become fast a lazy trope While the recent hullabaloo around stay alert has my aged mother, who grew up in the Second World War, respond, she is always alert, and have we become too dull-witted to take on board using our individual and collective responsibility? Subjected to the weight of the mainstream views in the national, social and advertising media, I am aware there are many other resourcing perspectives and voices abounding yet discounted by those who want to market the main perspective. As a lifelong edge dweller, this is frustrating but not surprising. Rather than asking us to passively accept lockdown, which is in danger of taking us to the ultimate cul-de-sac of anxiety, there are other avenues to explore, which may actually enhance and resource collaborative human behaviour, not only with each other, but with the wider natural world. If we enable the mature conversations to develop about the nature of living and dying, we might find the least harmful way of living with our current plight. Thankfully, in the last few months, this has indeed been the shape of conversations many of us are having in our ordinary everyday ways, 
where questions are explored in ways so different to the stifling groupthink of the digital media world. As already mentioned, there is much to sadden me when listening to the news. Here is but one example of an item that concerned me earlier in May, the results of the Ipsos survey, and I quote, In most recent polling data, people say they would be uncomfortable leaving home even if the government ordered the lifting of the restrictions in a month's time. More than 60% would be uncomfortable about going out to bars and restaurants or using public transport. Should ministers decide to relax the lockdown, a survey for Ipsos Mori suggested. More than 40% would still be reluctant to go shopping or send their children to school and more than 30% would be worried about going to work or meeting friends. And worryingly, experts have been struck by how compliant the British public have remained. I obviously have a caveat. Early in June, we've seen extraordinary scenes out on the beaches um, and and the unfolding picture of what happens with the primary schools, uh, years one and six returning. However, anyway, the results of this survey got me pondering on my dog walk of that day about the passivity of our current lifestyle. The laziness that someone else will take responsibility for our governance, health, education, etc, etc. And of course, in that mode, we can easily sit there having endless opinions and indulge in blame, wanting mummy and daddy or the state to sort it all out. In this, there is a bigger story revealed. For that, I need to recount what was said to my sister at our father's funeral. She was 18 and one of our father's friends said, don't let death make you frightened of life. Don't let death make you frightened of life. Wise words indeed, and the kind of words that those of us who are prepared to try and be elders in society need to voice and share. I am forever sharing with others that life and death are holy twins and sacred notions, just as love and grief, joy and sorrow go hand in hand. If we are prepared to take these sacred, and yes I mean sacred, notions to heart, we come to an honest, strong, yet vulnerable understanding. In the title I say we need to court death, but I needed to catch your attention. And by this of course I don't mean we recklessly go out and seek our annihilation. The nihilistic frenzy of people usually seek, you know, when they seek out these high risk and addictive activities ranging from excessive drugs and alcohol and everything else in between to violent sex is invariably found when the sorrows of dying, death and grieving are not given a room in the house. If we meet these events with the view that they are initiations to something larger than us and engage with the forces of life and death, creation and destruction, we find resources that enable healing through sorrowing and thereby more life rather than a life of angst-ridden non-living. If we take on board having a respectful, courteous courtship with an offer of hospitality to take a converse, undertake a conversation with death, we find it is an ally, a helpful guest in our days of living, rather than an enemy that must be denied existence. If we deny its existence, it invariably goes on to haunt out our every move. Or as Jung said, what we resist persists, 
embrace it and it will dissolve. If you are expecting me now to give you a handy five-step program on how to do this, you will be disappointed. Aside from the fact I have never been one to pursue such guidance in those self-help how-to books, whether they be about child-rearing, how to beat cancer or stay positive and be rich, etc. Such books come out of a culture of consumption and with notions that, like machines, we just need fixing. Invariably, the author has a PhD or some guru status, whereby the insights of their personal story get sold to the rest of us as the expert advice. Such sales pitches displace and diminish people from trusting their own hard-won insights wrought from their everyday lives. That is why I'm going to ask you to undertake your own labour, to go into the venture with a notion of service to your own days of living. For is that not what we all do with all other areas of our life? We need to find our own ways, earn our own embodied understandings. Then our endeavours can serve those of us, you know, those who most need it and those that love us and will follow where we have left such mentorship. To understand the notions of courtship, I would recommend conversations with those of us who have engaged with the sorrows of life. Maybe we have followed a loved one to the threshold in their dying, or we have had to wrestle with our life, limiting illness, or the shock of a fatal accident. And we all know there are a myriad of other ways that life ends. Within such people one finds an embodied understanding rather than an intellectual exercise, that our living is not a given. This does not mean one becomes an anxious, gibbering wreck, nor a headstrong daredevil. No, for me and those around who connect with this perspective, we see it as an invitation to wonder more at the miraculous treasure that is life and an honouring of its fragility and complexity, as well as being a freedom from massive cultural, political and medical illusions. Rather than trying to deny or outrun a natural given, such folk, I find, tend to be humble yet wise in the face of the nature of things. And the most resourced and clear-sighted people to have around in any time of need. And these qualities of being, I observe, always flow more easily, calmly, for those who work and or live close to the land and animals. The seasonal rhythms of nature bring invariably a humbling perspective that we are all part of a great cycle of life and we are all alive today because of the many, many women and men who have lived and birthed and died before us. Death is never unexpected, sudden or before one's time and certainly is not new. Yet those who use such phrases have slipped into a delusional assumption there is always a tomorrow. It is an unhelpful, limiting stance, upholding as it does the isolated and arrogant notion of individualism. Whereas those people who give space daily to honour the fragility of all, of all life, as well as all those who have gone before them, they're dead, one tends to meet a wellspring of resources, practical, wise and knowledgeable, all in their different ways. In such spaces, we can reflect upon the notions that the very act of birth starts our sacred relationship with death, 
Indeed, birth and death experiences are the major events and are entwined in a myriad of ways. As a woman about to give birth, I had a profound moment of insight, surrendering to the reality I could live or die in the act of bringing forth new life. And those that have been with the dying know what a long and arduous labour it is, or can be, akin to the months of pregnancy and birthing. But where a person is disengaging from a physical, earthly existence, rather than arriving in this realm. Both events at the beginning and at the end of life are thresholds, initiations and of great power. Spaciousness around these profound events also brings realisations that for anyone to be alive, other beings will have died. When we allow ourselves to connect with the forces of nature, whether as physical or biological realities, or with regard to the changes in our life circumstances, the countless daily events that involve letting go of or adapting perspectives, behaviours and more, they show us that this ebb and flow of life and death, creation and destruction, is a constant and not just one big event awaiting us like the reaper waiting grimly. And for those of us who are courageous enough to take on this dance, this courtship, this moving aside of the veils, a deep well of resource can be drunk from. You see, we know, while it will not magically protect us or make things easy, good or well, when we travel with dying or death, it will provide us with great resource, out of which many alchemical gifts can and do arise. Often it has been in my years of challenge that I have turned on my tongue Shakespeare's sonnet, Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark. The current epidemic, which has created an over-anxious fear response that privileges Covid over and above all other forms of illness, has a problematic consequence. Don't misconstrue me here, I'm not denying the serious nature of the virus. One of the unintended consequences of the fear-driven messages of the government speak means we have turned a blind eye to all the other forms of dying and death going on right now. Never mind all the other diseases that are manifesting but not getting relevant treatment. So while there has been a collective fixation on the daily COVID death numbers in the briefings, was there ever a consideration to list all the other deaths occurring? Or does, for example, a friend dying of cancer not count when he dies in these days of pandemic? Or what of the family who are dealing with a young man or a husband who has taken their own life? Or the couple with a stillborn baby? The examples are endless. And what of those who have died, say, in a care home with dementia and their loved ones appreciate the arrival of death as a blessed relief and the natural conclusion to that unique life lived? Thereby they have not got lost in the disabling distraction of blaming, rather the path of love is followed, leading to the shores where sorrow can be honestly met. 
after the pandemic has deemed to past its worst? Will we announce daily the death rates in this country or any other? Will we have a statistician's ranking list, say, from different types of cancer, heart disease, obesity, traffic accidents, suicide, murders, and all other of the rest of the way that we can die or be killed? I think not, and I hope not. But the mercurial side of me wonders what would happen if we did report daily the birth and death rates of the nation, or even just our local areas. Rather than becoming either numbed or frightened by such reportage, maybe, just maybe, it might lead to some collective intelligent insight and deepened connection to the cycles of life and death and the importance of natural limitations. I think what we are experiencing in these daily briefings and in the other programmes that are related to all things COVID in an ever-exhausting way mind you, haven't most of us turned it all off by now? Is there not a huge elephant in the room? For modern cultures that are highly deathphobic and have skirted the topic for far too long, it has now become a voyeuristic fixation and in the worst possible manner producing secondary and tertiary trauma. The great unsaid is, I don't want to die and especially not of Covid in the ways portrayed. This obsession is paralysing many and in anxiety and meanwhile utterly avoiding a dialogue that could serve us better and help us move out of lockdown. Let's be clear, the, in quotes, entertainment of the digital world is not particularly an asset. Indeed, someone in their 70s observed to me that if social media was not in existence at this point in time, we would not be in lockdown globally most of the world will be going about its day-to-day -day business. We have created and fed a virtual monster where it is much harder to deal with the anxieties about something that might happen. This is why lockdown is proving hard to unpick. Yet I maintain this is exactly the moment that those of us that have gathered the insights of lived experience into some practical embodied usage must speak out. In the moments of real-life challenges, we do have the skills, resilience and problem-solving capabilities to do what is required. In fact, it is, the face, it is in the face of life's challenges where we actually grow into our humanness. In contrast, the peddling of the all-round cotton wool safety notion is more to do with organisations watching their back in light of the blaming litigation culture. It will be our undoing as a human race if we don't start to reorient ourselves with regard to our place within nature. I need to come back to that phrase, courting death, in the sense of giving it attention. Having arrived at a place where in my living days I pay attention to the only inevitable thing of my life, that I will die, I find an appreciation for the words of the old sages who say in a variety of ways, die before you die. Once more, I need to reiterate, I'm not promoting a we are all doomed, anxious approach, but rather that there are ways of engaging with our mortality that are more resourcing than the current limited mainstream mindset. Those of us who have started to engage thoughtfully with our mortality while in the fullness of life, 
usually because of close personal or work experiences with the dying, dead or having had life-saving encounters, tend to be more resourced by ancient wisdoms when the hard times of dying need to be navigated with ourselves or those close to us. You see, I'm under no illusion dying, as is birth, hard work with suffering involved. Both entail highs and lows, and in the dying times there are also unexpected insights and gifts to hand. And another thing that I know, a balm that is not often shared, is that death is itself benign. What I have begun to understand of myself and see in others who work their way to the resources of ancient wisdoms is what equates to a deep marriage with one's own life forces. Marriages are complex arrangements, yet if committed to, they bring the gifts of freedom and growth. Such gifts enable one to engage with whatever comes one's way in living and dying. As I have said above, it is not about guaranteeing an easy passage. Those in vogue phrases such as a good death spring to mind, so akin to the question that used to perplex my husband when people asked if our firstborn was a good baby. Such rushes to judgment and pigeonhole shut down the unique complexity of a given experience Indeed, they silence and disable and thereby feed the unspoken concerns. The unspoken concern, the fear for many, must be what will we die of? At present, we are people over-focused on thinking we will die from, or should that be with, Covid, to the exclusion of all other possibilities. Does this serve us well? There are so many ways we end up dead through a plethora of illnesses, accidents and killing. How much time should be spent thinking about the possibilities? If we return to the place where we make peace with the reality that our death will come at some point, then a number of things can emerge. We can explore where we can take individual responsibility for some things and where we need to take collective societal actions as has been made so clear with COVID, and where we have no agency and have to just get on with living. For example, while I can make choices about my eating, drinking, support my immune system and make other lifestyle choices, the moment of when it is my time to meet death is still unpredictable. But because I have engaged with the dynamic of life and death, it will not be news when I come into my die, days of dying. As for my dying, if I'm given time to die, I will undoubtedly behave and use the same tools that I've used in my living. This is one of the unspoken truths, that people will bring the best and worst aspects of themselves to their dying. This is normal. There is no rule book. But I do know this. Those who spend a lifetime denying their mortality, see death as a failure, are unable to give voice to their place in their days will be stopping up the flow of things for themselves and those around them. While those that have given some forethought in their fulsome days of living come to be capable of reading the map and leaving it as a guide for those that follow after them. And probably the most important point is that much of the quest in hand is beyond our control and that we have to let go and surrender 
to the nature of what dying is, not in the sense of giving up, but rather in the sense to be humbled and bow before it. And Bert Hellinger has this quote, he says, the hare trusts his feelings and continues eating, knowing nothing of the hunter who is aiming at him. So rather than worrying endlessly about how I might die, the honesty of knowing I will die enables me to engage with living more fully. But I will be honest, the aspect that concerns me most will be the environment of my dying. I would hate and be frightened to be in the situation where medicalised procedure and protocol overrides humanity. And therein lies another exploration of how we have given the days of our ending over to people beyond the home and family to whom we have given the title of medical professionals and experts. In the business of medicine, death is seen as a failure rather than the culmination of a life well lived. Yet just as with birth, death and our conscience, conscious engagement with it surely is the most profound and normal event of, for all because we have been able to avoid, if not neglect, paying close attention to death and birth in modern life, as these events are usually removed from the home sphere, we have created herds of elephants, and this neglect has extended to our dead. The message being akin to, if death is a failure, then the dead are not worth connecting to. We need to court are dead too. Much of this essay has focused on the all-consuming anxiety of an individual's state of being, but I would suggest that much of this death-phobic anxiety arises out of the collective neglect of our dead. Think of all the phrases, dead and gone, life goes on, the world keeps turning. However, if we make a joint marriage not only deeply within ourselves with regard to our mortal days, but also reach out to those who have come before us, we will find, especially if we have not done so before, a great connection to the ceaseless cycle of life. We are alive for a short time, and then we will join all the other life forces that came before us. And I leave it to you to ponder on what ways that suits you, whether it's in terms of returning to, you know, to the atomic elements or weaving it into your own given belief system. Such musings, though, humbly and peaceably, put us in our place as we tussle with the conundrums of our living days. And Bert Hellinger also says, the victory of life over death leads to the desolation of the earth. The victory of life over death leads to the desolation of the earth. Currently, I see our society backing itself into a cul-de-sac of epically unhelpful human behaviours in the face of COVID. The virus is not the major problem. We are. We are eating ourselves up in anxiety because we have neglected the dynamic relationship between life and death. Never mind how we have forgotten how to attend to grieving and sorrows in the mists of life. And by misunderstanding them, we diagnose them as depressions that need medicating rather than being a journey, a labour of love that makes us fully human and enables us to grow up. In our days of breathing, 
if we allow a courtship to develop of what it is to be alive and what is the place of death, we may find ways to create different ways of being for ourselves, individually and as collective humans, and I dare say it, within our place on earth. We will actively take care rather than passively stay safe. If we engage authentically with our own mortality, I know we can then be of much more help to the dying, the grieving and calmer about death. The skills to be alongside others in their days of dying or grieving becomes a loving act, uncluttered by our personal agenda, with the capacity to connect and draw upon a deep well of resource. By being more in harmony with the inevitable rhythms, I would venture we enable the young and inexperienced in these matters to follow in our courageous footsteps knowing we live because we can dance with death rather than having to either cower anxiously inside with a false notion of safety or head out recklessly seeking a destructive consumerist self-initiation of one type or another and not least we will come to a place of equanimity where there is a time to live and a time to die enabling some wiser discernment when it comes to listening to those government, scientific, medical and media news stories. There is a different way and the nature of how we approach this virus is asking us to find it. And when we do that, we will find a way beyond our current human predicaments. Thanks for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're interested in hearing more, please look out for my podcast, look at my YouTube channel, Lewis Herbalist and Storyteller, and maybe you'd consider either making a donation or a subscription to help me continue in my work with all things story and herbal and the web weaving of life. Thanks again for listening and look forward to uh, touching base with you again. Bye bye.